Chapter 4 of The Beast in the Jungle by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 of The Beast in the Jungle by Henry James. Then it was that one afternoon, while the spring of the year was young and new, she met all in her own way his frankest betrayal of these alarms. He had gone in late to see her, but evening hadn't settled, and she was presented to him in that long, fresh light of waning April days, which affects us often with a sadness sharper than the grayest hours of autumn. The week had been warm, the spring was supposed to have begun early, and May Bartram sat, for the first time in the year, without a fire, a fact that, to Marcher's sense, gave the scene of which she formed part a smooth and ultimate look, an air of knowing, in its immaculate order and cold, meaningless cheer, that it would never see a fire again. Her own aspect, he could scarce have said why, intensified this note, almost as white as wax, with the marks and signs in her face as numerous and as fine as if they had been etched by a needle, with soft white draperies relieved by a faded green scarf, on the delicate tone of which the years had further refined, she was the picture of a serene and exquisite but impenetrable sphinx, whose head, or indeed all whose person, might have been powdered with silver. She was a sphinx, yet with her white petals and green fronds she might have been a lily too, only an artificial lily, wonderfully imitated and constantly kept, without dust or stain, though not exempt from a slight droop, and a complexity of faint creases, under some clear glass bell. The perfection of household care, of high polish and finish, always reigned in her rooms, but they now looked most as if everything had been wound up, tucked in, put away, so that she might sit with folded hands and with nothing more to do. She was out of it, to Marcher's vision. Her work was over. She communicated with him as across some gulf, or from some island of rest that she had already reached, and it made him feel strangely abandoned. Was it, or rather wasn't it, that if for so long she had been watching with him, the answer to their question must have swum into her ken and taken on its name, so that her occupation was verily gone? He had as much as charged her with this in saying her many months before that she even then knew something she was keeping from him. It was a point he had never since ventured to press, vaguely fearing as he did that it might become a difference, perhaps a disagreement, between them. He had in this later time turned nervous, which was what he in all the other years had never been and the oddity was that his nervousness should have waited till he had begun to doubt, should have held off so long as he was sure. There was something, it seemed to him, that the wrong word would bring down on his head, something that would so at least ease off his tension. But he wanted not to speak the wrong word. That would make everything ugly. He wanted the knowledge he lacked to drop on him, if drop it could, by its own august weight. If she was to forsake him, it was surely for her to take leave. This was why he didn't directly ask her again what she knew. But it was also why, approaching the matter from another side, 
he said to her in the course of his visit. "'What do you regard as the very worst that at this time of day can happen to me?' He had asked her that in the past often enough. They had, with the odd irregular rhythm of their intensities and avoidances, exchanged ideas about it, and then had seen the ideas washed away by cool intervals, washed like figures traced in sea-sand. It had ever been the mark of their talk that the oldest allusions in it required but a little dismissal and reaction to come out again, sounding for the hour as new. She could thus at present meet his inquiry quite freshly and patiently. Oh, yes, I've repeatedly thought, only it always seemed to me of old that I couldn't quite make up my mind. I thought of dreadful things, between which it was difficult to choose, and so must you have done. Rather, I feel now as if I had scarce done anything else. I appear to myself to have spent my life in thinking of nothing but dreadful things. A great many of them I've at different times named to you. But there were others I couldn't name. They were too, too dreadful? Too, too dreadful, some of them. She looked at him a minute, and there came to him as he met it an inconsequent sense that her eyes, when one got their full clearness, were still as beautiful as they had been in youth, only beautiful with a strange cold light, a light that somehow was a part of the effect, if it wasn't rather a part of the cause, of the pale hard sweetness of the season and the hour. And yet, she said at last, there are horrors we've mentioned. It deepened the strangeness to see her, as such a figure, in such a picture, talk of horrors but she was to do in a few minutes something stranger yet, though even of this he was to take the full measure but afterwards, and the note of it already trembled. It was, for the matter of that, one of the signs that her eyes were having again the high flicker of their prime. He had to admit, however, what she said. Oh, yes, there were times when we did go far, he caught himself in the act of speaking, as if it were all over. Well, he wished it were. And the consummation depended for him clearly more and more on his friend. But she had now a soft smile. Oh, far! It was oddly ironic. Do you mean we're prepared to go further? She was frail and ancient and charming, as she continued to look at him, yet it was rather as if she had lost the thread. Do you consider that we went far? Why, I thought at the point you were just making, that we had looked most things in the face. Including each other? She still smiled. But you're quite right. We've had together great imaginations, often great fears. But some of them have been unspoken. Then the worst. We haven't faced that. I could face it, I believe, if I knew what you think it. I feel, he explained, as if I had lost my power to conceive such things. And he wondered if he looked as blank as he sounded. It's spent. Then why do you assume, she said, that mine isn't? Because you've given me signs to the contrary. It isn't a question for you of conceiving, imagining, comparing. It isn't a question now of choosing. At last he came out with it. 
You know something I don't. You've shown me that before. These last words had affected her, he made out in a moment, exceedingly, and she spoke with firmness. I've shown you, my dear, nothing. He shook his head. You can't hide it. Oh, oh, May Bartram sounded over what she couldn't hide. It was almost a smothered groan. You admitted it months ago, when I spoke of it to you as of something you were afraid I should find out. Your answer was that I couldn't, that I wouldn't, and I don't pretend I have. But you had something, therefore, in mind, and I see now how it must have been, how it still is, the possibility that, of all possibilities, has settled itself for you as the worst. This, he went on, is why I appeal to you. I'm only afraid of ignorance today. I'm not afraid of knowledge. And then, as for a while, she said nothing. What makes me sure is that I see in your face and feel here, in this air and amid these appearances, that you're out of it. You've done. You've had your experience. You leave me to my fate. Well, she listened, motionless and white in her chair, as on a decision to be made so that her manner was fairly an avowal, though still with a small, fine inner stiffness, an imperfect surrender. It would be the worst, she finally let herself say. I mean, the thing I've never said. It hushed him a moment. More monstrous than all the monstrosities we've named? More monstrous. Isn't that what you sufficiently express? she asked. In calling it the worst? Marcher thought. Assuredly, if you mean as I do, something that includes all the loss and all the shame that are thinkable. It would if it should happen, said May Bartram. What we're speaking of, remember, is only my idea. It's your belief, Marcher returned. That's enough for me. I feel your beliefs are right. Therefore, if... Having this one, you give me no more light on it. You abandon me. No, no, she repeated. I'm with you, don't you see? Still. And as to make it more vivid to him, she rose from her chair, a movement she seldom risked in these days, and showed herself all draped and all soft in her fairness and slimness. I haven't forsaken you. It was really, in its effort against weakness, a generous assurance, and had the success of the impulse not happily been great, it would have touched him to pain more than to pleasure. But the cold charm in her eyes had spread, as she hovered before him, to all the rest of her person, so that it was, for the minute, almost a recovery of youth. He couldn't pity her for that. He could only take her as she showed as capable even yet of helping him. It was as if, at the same time, her light might at any instant go out, wherefore he must make the most of it. There passed before him with intensity the three or four things he wanted most to know, but the question that came of itself to his lips really covered the others. Then tell me if I shall consciously suffer. She promptly shook her head. Never. It confirmed the authority he imputed to her, 
and it produced on him an extraordinary effect. "'Well, what's better than that? Do you call that the worst?' "'You think nothing is better?' she asked. She seemed to mean something so special that he again sharply wondered, though still with the dawn of a prospect of relief. "'Why not, if one doesn't know?' after which, as their eyes, over his question, met in a silence, the dawn deepened, and something to his purpose came prodigiously out of her very face. His own, as he took it in, suddenly flushed to the forehead, and he gasped with the force of a perception to which, on the instant, everything fitted. The sound of his gasp filled the air. Then he became articulate. "'I see.' if I don't suffer. In her own look, however, was doubt. You see what? Why, what you mean, what you've always meant. She again shook her head. What I mean isn't what I've always meant. It's different. It's something new? She hung back from it a little. Something new? It's not what you think. I see what you think." His divination drew breath then. Only her correction might be wrong. "'It isn't that I am a blockhead?' he asked, between faintness and grimness. "'It isn't that it's all a mistake?' "'A mistake?' she pityingly echoed. That possibility, for her, he saw, would be monstrous. And if she guaranteed him the immunity from pain, it would accordingly not be what she had in mind. "'Oh, no,' she declared. "'It's nothing of that sort. "'You've been right.' Yet he couldn't help asking himself if she weren't, thus pressed, speaking but to save him. It seemed to him he should be most in a hole if his history should prove all a platitude. "'Are you telling me the truth?' so that I shan't have been a bigger idiot than I can bear to know, I haven't lived with a vain imagination, in the most besotted illusion, I haven't waited but to see the door shut in my face?" She shook her head again. However the case stands, that isn't the truth. Whatever the reality, it is a reality. The door isn't shut. The door's open," said May Bartram. Then something's to come?" She waited once again, always with her cold, sweet eyes on him. It's never too late. She had, with her gliding step, diminished the distance between them, and she stood nearer to him, close to him, a minute, as if still charged with the unspoken. Her movement might have been for some finer emphasis of what she was at once hesitating and deciding to say. He had been standing by the chimney-piece, fireless and sparely adorned, a small perfect old French clock and two morsels of rosy Dresden constituting all its furniture, and her hand grasped the shelf while she kept him waiting, grasped it a little as for support and encouragement. She only kept him waiting, however. That is, he only waited. It had become suddenly from her movement and attitude, beautiful and vivid to him, that she had something more to give him. Her wasted face delicately shone with it, 
It glittered almost as with the white luster of silver in her expression. She was right, incontestably, for what he saw in her face was the truth. And strangely, without consequence, while their talk of it as dreadful was still in the air, she appeared to present it as inordinately soft. This, prompting bewilderment, made him but gape the more gratefully for her revelation, so that they continued for some minutes silent, her face shining at him, her contact imponderably pressing, and his stare all kind but all expectant. The end, nonetheless, was that what he had expected failed to come to him. Something else took place instead, which seemed to consist at first in the mere closing of her eyes. She gave way at the same instant to a slow, fine shudder, and though he remained staring, though he stared in fact but the harder, turned off and regained her chair. It was the end of what she had been intending, but it left him thinking only of that. "'Well, you don't say?' She had touched in her passage a bell near the chimney, and had sunk back, strangely pale. "'I'm afraid I'm too ill.' "'Too ill to tell me?' It sprang up sharp to him, and almost to his lips the fear she might die without giving him light. He checked himself in time from so expressing his question. But she answered as if she had heard the words. Don't you know now? Now? She had spoken as if some difference had been made within the moment. But her maid, quickly obedient to her bell, was already with them. I know nothing. And he was afterwards to say to himself that he must have spoken with odious impatience, such an impatience as to show that, supremely disconcerted, he washed his hands of the whole question. Oh, said May Bartram, are you in pain? he asked, as the woman went to her. No, said May Bartram. Her maid, who had put an arm round her as if to take her to her room, fixed on him eyes that appealingly contradicted her, in spite of which, however, he showed once more his mystification. What then has happened? She was once more, with her companion's help, on her feet, and, feeling withdrawal imposed on him, he had blankly found his hat and gloves, and had reached the door. Yet he waited for her answer. "'What was to?' she said. End of chapter 4 of The Beast in the Jungle by Henry James